A Southwest flight is on its way from Dallas to New York when the plane experiences a catastrophe. What caused this flight to make an emergency landing in Pennsylvania? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And we have... I know! <laughs> oh, that was going have, so well. We have Brendan with us. <laughs> yes, welcome. Thank you. I, uh, uh, I'm glad to be back. <laughs> hey, uh, you should go join the Patreon page Yeah, for these people, because they uh, make this episode, and it costs money to do so. <laughs> it does. And time. So I'm surprised he said this. He wasn't paid to do that. <laughs> Yeah, we're keeping that. Thanks I, for the free advertising. I do care every now and then. Thanks. So <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah. It does so if money. you uh, we, have, we have so far never made a profit. We are actually still very far. See, from ever you see making what you're doing money. to these people. <laughs> it's okay. We go like over what? to Patreon and fork up the cash. Okay. Jesus, we like what we do. Don't shame our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> listeners, you can do whatever you want. Look, all you have to do is a minimum of a hundred dollars a month. <laughs> okay. But no, you can do a minimum of nothing. <laughs> Pretty much. You can actually do a minimum of like a dollar. It's two dollars. Two dollars. Or two dollars, but actually you can do a minimum of less. You, you can do less. You just won't get anything. Yeah, you don't out get anything it. out of it. Can I do less than a dollar? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. If I can do like you get charged sales a nickel. Tax, <laughs> How much would sales tax be on a nickel? <laughs> I don't uh not much. Not not enough to Sorry. Brendan's here. Welcome back, as always. Thank you. What are we covering today, Nick? <laughs> so today, we are covering Southwest Airlines Flight 1380. Thank you to Rich? Yes, thank you to Rich for recommending this episode. Who's yes. a patron? Right on, man. Thank you. Hey, yeah. thanks for being on Patreon. Yeah. So there's a weird, a couple of weird timing things about this episode coming out when it did. First of all, we brought it up, I brought it up in the episode last week, which is because there's some familiarities, but also, I didn't know we were doing this. We figured it out while we were recording that week. we were actually doing it this week. We right. were like, oh. Oh. Okay. Which, yes. So, sorry. That was not on But purpose. also, this will be the most recent incident we will have ever talked about. This was on April 17th of 2018, and it was a <gasps> Boeing 737. Shocker. 700. I'm so shocked. Shocked, I, I say shocked. Yes, that is all that Southwest flies, is the 737. They do fly the 700, the 800, and eventually the 8 Max again. We'll see about that. Yep. The tail number for this airplane was November 772 Sierra Whiskey. The flight was to be from LaGuardia to Dallas Love Field. LaGuardia, New York. LaGuardia, New York. LaGuardia. Queens, New York. Every time they listed an airport or a city in here, they listed the city, county, in the state, <laughs> what county like is LaGuardia in? Uh, I, it's Queens. I don't know. Uh. The captain for the flight was Tammy Jo Schultz. She had seventeen thousand seven hundred and fifteen hours total, of which ten thousand five hundred and thirteen hours were on the seven thirty seven. So almost all of her time. Nice. You where, go, girl. Where she had the majority of the rest of her time was flying FA eighteens for the Navy. Wow, that's yeah. it. Yeah. That's where she had a lot of time. Whatever. That's fine, I guess. The f <laughs> Sorry. That is impressive. It's pretty cool. She was one of the first female FA-18 pilots. Again. Good for her. You go, girl. Yeah. Yeah. 
The first officer was Darren Ellisar. He had 9,508 hours total, of which 6,927 hours were on the 737, so also very experienced on the 737. He previously had flown with the Air Force, flying E-3 sentries. Fancy. Yep. So they were both military. They were both military, just different branches. Typically the two that when pilots meet in the cockpit, they're like, I'm better. (laughs) (laughs) Navy's better. Air Force is better. Coast Guard. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> you wish. It was the Navy's birthday yesterday. Oh, hey, cool. They're 245 years old. Wow. So, happy, cool. Happy yesterday birthday. from recording date. This is two yes. weeks later. Uh, what's today? The 14th, 13th. Yesterday was yesterday. 14th, 14th friend. Today yes. is the 14th. I said, no, yesterday was her birthday. Oh, 13th. okay. 13th was 13. her birthday. Mention that. There were 144 passengers and five crew on this flight. This crew were to be paired together for a four-day trip. This was the second day of that pairing. The crew reported at 6 a.m. Central Daylight Time to the Nashville International Airport, where they would pick up the accident plane and fly it to LaGuardia for the first leg of the day. They departed Nashville at 6.44 a.m. Central Daylight Time and arrived at LaGuardia at 9.28 Eastern Daylight Time. Now we will stay in Eastern Daylight Time for the rest of this, don't worry. Their next flight was to be the accident leg. The airplane pushed back from the gate at LaGuardia at 10.27 a.m., and they took off at 10.43 a.m. The first officer was the pilot flying for this leg, and the captain was the pilot monitoring. At 10.57 a.m., the air traffic controller directed the flight to climb to flight level 380, or 38,000 feet. This was acknowledged, and the flight continued to ascend toward the 38,000 feet. The flight was so far smooth and normal. As the flight crossed through 32,000 feet, however, at 11.03 a.m. in 33 seconds, a loud bang was heard, and the airplane shook violently. Oh, that's good. Yep. Simultaneously, the number one engine began spooling down. A passenger window next to seat 14A was blown out, and the passenger sitting in 14A was sucked partway out of the window. It's a good thing that, I know it's a woman, but uh, Mm -hmm. that she didn't get sucked all the way out of the plane. Yes, which refer to Aloha. That'd be a tight squeeze out yes. of the window. That yeah, but in Aloha, it was like a happened. 10 by 10. So. That's probably what kept her from getting sucked out the window. You probably, Yeah, you probably more likely get sucked out of that window than a CRJ. Oh! Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, having flown on the CRJ, that's just yeah uncomfortable. Your shoulder would be sucked out. It would be mildly <laughs> uncomfortable for your arm. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's terrible. Uh, the CRJ deserves it. Yes. The 200 series, specifically. Yes. It's at, like, hip level. The oxygen masks dropped in the cabin. The passenger beside the passenger in 14A assisted in trying to pull her back into the airplane. Oh, gotta um them. For, instead of trying to move away, trying to pull her back in. Yes. Later, the flight attendants would also try to help as much as they could. The airplane began immediately rolling to the left uncommanded. At 11.03 and 39 seconds, so just seconds after the bang, the cabin altitude alert horn sounded in the cockpit, indicating that the cabin pressure increased above 10,000 feet cabin altitude. So this is the equivalent altitude that the cabin pressure is at. So if you're breathing, it's the equivalent of breathing at 10,000 feet above sea level. At 11.03 and 42 seconds, the crew began to don their oxygen masks. The airplane managed to reach a 41.3 degree bank to the left, before the first officer began pulling the airplane back to level flight at 11.03 and 44 seconds. 
which was 11 seconds after that bang sound. It took roughly 6 seconds for the airplane to return to wings level. At 11.03 a.m. and 58 seconds, both throttles were reduced to idle, and the airplane began to pitch down as the crew began a steep descent to get back down to a level with breathable air. At 11.04 a.m. and 9 seconds, the left engine fuel cutoff switch was changed to the up position, severing the fuel flow to the engine, which was an attempt to stop any fires that may exist in the engine. Were there fires in the engine? I never found anything about it, actually. Oh. I didn't either. I believe they had an indication. Yeah, they had some kind of indication. Which is why they went through the, check the emergency procedure for that. Right. They did have some kind of indication because you'll, you'll see they also report it to air traffic control. At that point, the engine began windmilling for the remainder of the descent. So, in other words, it was just free spinning from the pressure of air pushing against the front of it. Right. But it, was not, it did not have any actual thrust. At 11.04 and 21 seconds, the New York Center controller handling the flight issued the flight a clearance direct to a waypoint along the flight route. The flight crew did not respond to this. At 11.04 and 28 seconds, so seven seconds later, the air traffic controller repeated the instruction, but again, no response. And ten seconds later, the air traffic controller again attempted to reach the flight with, again, no response. Finally, at 11.04 and 50 seconds, the air traffic controller said, Southwest 1380, if you're trying to get me... All I hear is static. At this point, the crew managed to get their masks on and set, and four seconds later, the captain stated, Southwest 1380 has an engine fire descending. So this was news to the air traffic controller, of course. Eight seconds later, the captain transmitted, We're single engine descending, have fire in number one. So in other words, they were rapidly descending, and they expected that there was a fire in the left engine. At this time, they were descending through 28,000 feet, so they were pretty quickly descending. They'd already dropped 4,000 feet in a pretty short order. The air traffic controller then asked where they planned to divert to. The captain responded, Give us a vector for your closest. The air traffic controller suggested Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and he gave the flight a heading of 250 degrees. The captain acknowledged the heading and said, We're looking at Philly. While this discussion was happening, the airplane reached its peak descent rate of 5,228 feet per minute for about 16 seconds of time. So the airplane was descending at almost a mile a minute. Which is crazy. It is, actually. Pretty fast for an airliner. Aren't they supposed to be able to go with one engine, though? Are they just trying to get it down so that it's... because of the cabin altitude. Yeah. That and the... Okay. I'm sure the loss of control didn't help. Yeah, the loss either. of control was uh, they wanted to get this airplane on the ground soon. But also primarily when they have a loss of pressurization in the cabin, Getting it's also it down so that yeah, you they do can that take off your required to the emergency yeah. descent. Yeah. This does actually happen with a lot of airplanes, not a lot, but this happens relatively frequently and most of the time it's a non-incident. IE there was a Delta 767 last year that lost pressurization and the Masks dropped. It was in Florida. They didn't have any major failure or anything, but the airplane, they did descend pretty rapidly back down to 10,000 feet because of the loss of cabin pressure. And afterward, passengers went on the media and said, I thought I was going to die. We were falling from the sky and the airplane was crashing. And the pilots were like, no, that was all on purpose <laughs> no. to save your life. Okay, but... <laughs> kind of slight tangent about this flight and its passengers they were afterwards they were posting pictures on social media like selfies with their oxygen masks and everything and this is the point at which i think it was probably the faa who 
came out to the media and was like, so you guys don't listen to safety briefings, apparently, because you're supposed to put that over your mouth and nose. Uh, cue us telling you a hundred million times to listen to the safety briefing and uh, read the safety information card. Yes. So they all had their masks just over their face or over their mouth and not their nose, which at that point, it's like you can still breathe out your nose. Why wouldn't you cover that? Whatever. To be fair, it's not really that important. I mean, because I mean, you'll just you'll be hypoxic for a little bit. You'll pass out and you'll wake up. At, yeah, that's true. thankfully the crew were doing what they yeah. were supposed to do. <laughs> right. So, if you are ever in an incident on a commercial airliner and the masks drop, put it over your nose and mouth. This has been a your public service announcement. Thank you. Yeah, because being on. hypoxic and then passing out, even if you pass out, then wake up, probably not the greatest experience right. ever. I mean, you could miss some vital instructions that were given over the flight crew. Yeah. Also, to be fair, though, they are really small. They are really small. they are small. really weird because they, they, they don't go underneath your chin. A lot of people yeah. expect I, that. I do think it is probably time for a redesign of this thing. The it's yellow been this, cup. The yellow cup. It's been the same for many, many In any case. So, there's your public, public service announcement. announcement. Yeah. Wear your mask unless you just feel like taking a nap. <laughs> <laughs> Wear your mask properly. Just going to take a quick nap. <laughs> it's one of those Southwest funny flight yeah. attendant yeah, things. Yeah. yeah. You know, it was like, if, yeah. the, if the mask drops, stop screaming. Let go of your neighbor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, Put yeah. it over your nose and mouth. <laughs> yeah. All right. At 11.05 a.m. and 32 seconds, the captain asked the first officer, have you got the aircraft? Twice. The first officer acknowledged this. The captain then began going through the 737 quick reference handbook. At 11.05 and 52 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to fly direct to Philadelphia. This was about two and a half minutes after that initial bang. So all of this has happened so far, and it's only been two and a half minutes. We have taken much longer. Yeah, to but say so far, we've described <laughs> it in probably like five, ten minutes. Yeah. And there's a lot more to go. The first officer acknowledged the call. The captain then made an announcement over the PA to inform the passengers and cabin crew that they would be diverting to Philadelphia. At 11.06 a.m. and 55 seconds, the air traffic controller asks, So there's a fire? You're a single engine because of fire? The captain responded, Actually, we're no fire now, but we are single engine. The controller acknowledged, then cleared the airplane to descend to 11,000 feet, which the captain acknowledged, and they were pretty much well on their way. <laughs> so... At 11.07 and 51 seconds, the air traffic controller asked whether there should be anything standing by on the ground. The captain replied, quote, tell them roll the trucks, it's on the engine, number one, captain's side, end quote. To which the air traffic control acknowledged. At 11.08 a.m. and 12 seconds, the flight had been transferred to another controller on another frequency, at which point the captain declared an emergency and told the air traffic controller that they were descending through 17,000 feet. They were between 280 and 300 knots at this time. So still going pretty quick. At 11.09 a.m. and 30 seconds, the captain told the first officer, Tell you what, I'm going to take it. At which point, she became the pilot flying. So she took over the controls. The first officer then became the pilot monitoring. They were at 13,600 feet at this point. At 11.09 and 52 seconds, so 22 seconds later, the first officer began the engine fire or engine severe damage or separation checklist. That is the name of the checklist. You might remember that from last week. It's a good checklist to have. Yes, it is. It just don't actually call for that entire checklist out loud, or you might not make it. <laughs> that it's is also, one mouthful. It's also one you hope you never have to use. Yes, of course. At 11.10 a.m. and 14 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to contact Philadelphia Approach. So another 
controller. The first officer acknowledged. Shortly after, the air traffic controller instructed them to descend to 6,000 feet. And again, the first officer acknowledged. The air traffic controller then asked about fuel remaining and the souls on board. Typical of any flight in an emergency situation. To which the first officer replied, 149 occupants and 5 hours of fuel. So, a lot of fuel. At 11.11 a.m. and 37 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to fly a heading of 090. First officer acknowledged. At 11.11 and 45 seconds, the first officer asked the captain, We're going to need a few minutes, right? To run a couple checklists? Is that right? The captain responded, Nope, just keep going. (laughs) And the first officer said, Okay. Okay. She definitely had her mind made up. She was like, No, we're just going to get there. We're going to land right now. Yeah, we're going to land. At 11.11 and 53 seconds, the air traffic controller asked the crew about the nature of the emergency. The captain stated, Engine severe damage, engine failure. At 11, 12, and 28 seconds, the first officer stated that he had removed his mask because the airplane had descended below 10,000 feet. The first officer then offered to help the captain with her mask. So in other words, he would take control of the airplane so she could remove it. She thanked him and informed him that he may have to take the airplane for a moment. At 11, 13, and 5 seconds, the first officer stated, I'll take it. And seven seconds later, the captain asked him to hold it for a second. So obviously there was a lot of, I, don't, I didn't hear you, <laughs> but take the airplane. And he did. That's probably with those oxygen masks. Yeah, they're usually, it's hard to hear. Like, yeah, the comm systems are not as good. Yes. Little bit of uh, foreshadowing, but there is CVR and FDR data for this flight, and the CVR didn't hear any of their voices for about two minutes after the bang. Awesome. Yep. So a lot of this is after that point, when it was still hard to hear them, but they got something. At 11.13 and 19 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to descend to 4,000 feet, followed by the captain stating that she would take the plane back. The first officer then acknowledged the air traffic control call, the captain becoming the pilot flying again. At 11.13 and 34 seconds, the first officer stated, Check your airspeed. And the captain stated that she was trying to slow down the airplane, actually on purpose. The airspeed had decreased to 232 knots. She did this to reduce the airframe vibration that they were experiencing, even though this was also below the emergency checklist speed which is VMO, which is usually the maximum operating airspeed of the airplane, following within the rules. So basically, since they were below 10,000 feet, that would have been 250 knots. So that's why he called her out at 232 knots, but she was trying to slow down because the airplane was shaking. Why was it shaking so much? Was it because of the engine or because of the window? It was because of drag. Oh. We'll get into that in a minute. Great. Yep. The air traffic controller then asked the crew if they planned to, quote, go right in, end quote, or needed, quote, extended final, end quote. The captain stated that she wanted the extended final. So in other words, she wanted to go for a longer approach. At 11, 13, and 51 seconds, the first officer stated to the captain that they still had a couple of checklists to run. Three seconds later, the first officer stated that he wanted to talk to the flight attendants to find out the status of the cabin. The captain agreed and stated, I've got everything here. So in other words... She's in control. He just needs to see what's going on in the back. At 11.14 and 14 seconds, the air traffic controller asked if they wanted a short or long final, and the captain replied that they wanted a long final. She wanted us to have time to complete some of the checklists. The air traffic controller stated, I'm going to let you drive until you tell me you want to turn base. So in other words, turn perpendicular to the runway, intending to turn for final. So they were on the... So uh, they were on a downwind. Downwind leg. Yeah. They were on a downwind leg at this point, and this is because, though they didn't explain it in the story, but essentially, they were parallel with Philadelphia heading southbound 
roughly, when this occurred, the bang occurred. So then, during their descent, they had descended down into Philadelphia's airspace and had essentially passed the airport, and now they had to come back. And they were doing some amount of circling before they could finally make their approach in. They did end up having to pass the airport because of this. So they they did fly mostly straight in, but they had to make a 180-degree turn to come back for winds. So they probably st- they flew straight in. They were doing 250... Then they got a heading of 090. Yeah, just like that. So then they came down. They had to go around the airport. They went on this extended downwind before they turned base to final. And actually, it didn't end up being extended that much. No, that was uh, short. Yes, you'll you'll see. It could. Okay, I was about to say, this could be... She No, she asked for it to be long, but then she didn't. We'll get to that. The air traffic controller then indicated that they should expect at least a 25-mile final. At 11.14 and 37 seconds, the captain responded, 20 is good. We may need shorter here in a moment. So in other words, she was starting to anticipate turning earlier than she was even saying. That's a good pilot right there. Yes. She then asked about which runway to expect for landing. The air traffic controller informed them that they would be using 27 left. While this was happening, the first officer was attempting to contact the flight attendants. 12 seconds after attempting, the the first officer informed the captain that there was no reply. One of the flight attendants had apparently attempted to answer, but couldn't hear anything because of all the noise in the cabin. At 11.15 and 4 seconds, though, the first officer managed to get in contact with the flight attendant, who informed him, quote, We got a window open, and somebody is out the window, end quote. The first officer asked if everyone else was buckled in their seats. The flight attendant responded that everyone was still in their seats, though she didn't say if they were buckled. And we have been helping her get in, she said. I don't know what her condition is, but the window is completely out. During the discussion, the first officer told the captain to slow to 210 knots now, probably because there was somebody hanging out of a window. This was at 11.15 and 24 seconds. One of those, well, if you had told me that earlier. Yeah. Yeah. If they could have told them earlier. Right. This was a chaotic situation. The captain told the air traffic controller they would need to slow down. The air traffic controller responded, Speed is your discretion. Maintain any altitude above 3,000. And you let me know when you want to turn base. The captain acknowledged this. At 11.15 and 47 seconds, the first officer informed the captain about the injured passenger. Seven seconds later, the captain instructed the first officer to to perform the rest of the emergency checklist. The captain then decided to expedite the approach when she learned about the injured passenger. That would make sense. Yep. At 11.16 and 15 seconds, the captain stated that she wanted to use five degrees of flaps for landing because she wasn't sure how much control the airplane would have at a slower speed. The plane had been experiencing a lot of drag, which caused this concern. At 11.16 and 31 seconds, the captain told the air traffic controller she wanted to start turning the airplane for the approach. The air traffic controller responded, just start turning southbound, start looking for the airport, it's off to your right and slightly behind you there. At 11.17 and 4 seconds, the captain requested that emergency personnel meet the airplane on the runway because of a hole in the airplane in which a passenger went out. That was literally, quote, went out, end quote. That must be interesting to hear as an air traffic controller. Like, oh, crap. Yeah, bad. At 11.17 and 37 seconds, the captain told the air traffic controller that the airport was in sight. The air traffic controller then cleared them for the visual approach and to contact the tower. So they contacted yet another person. This is very typical. At 11.18 and 59 seconds, the tower controller cleared the flight to land on 27 left, 
in the wind at the time was at 280 at 19 gusting 25. So at 19 knots gusting to 25. So it's actually pretty windy. Well, at least it was a headwind, <laughs> though. Yes, this is good. They needed it since they were going to be landing fast. At 11.19 and 56 seconds, the captain called for the before landing checklist. At 11.20 and 13 seconds, the flight attendants started shouting, Heads down, stay down, to the passengers repeatedly. This is typical protocol these days. If the airplane is land making an emergency landing, the flight attendants are supposed to tell you to basically bend over and... Brace. Brace and kiss your butt goodbye. If you ever see <laughs> the movie Sully, yep. the flight attendants say it in... Yeah. Harmony with each other. Yep. This which, is normal. Yeah. Uh, it, but they the, gave me goosebumps. Yeah. Yes. It's very eerie. That would freak me out. That is exactly how passengers describe it when this happens. Actually, yeah. they say it's very eerie because it becomes dead silent and all you hear is the flight attendants yelling, heads down, stay down. Yeah. In unison. Ugh. At 11.20 and 30 seconds, the flight touched down on runway 27 left and the spoilers extended immediately. They touched down at 171 knots with 5 degrees of flaps. They're actually, their target speed was 180. So, this ended Doing up being good. slightly slower than so they, they planned. they were slow. Which was, yes. But this was good, because that, that gave them time to slow down. And that was what they needed, because this was a fast landing. Where did they stop on the runway? The flight exited the runway via a high-speed taxiway and stopped on the taxiway near a fire truck. Does that answer your question? Fortunate. Yes. Well, the fire trucks are generally waiting at all the intersections, if they can. At 11.21 and 43 seconds, the captain made a PA announcement to advise the passengers that a fire truck was approaching the left side of the plane, and they should remain seated and listen to the flight attendants. At 11.22 and 26 seconds, the captain made initial contact with the airport rescue via the radio. Nine seconds later, the captain relayed that the left side of the plane was damaged, the rescue crews informed him that they were inspecting the damage and there was no fire seen from outside. They then asked if there were injuries. The captain responded that there were injuries that needed addressed. At 11.25 and 20 seconds, the rescue stated that the buses were on the way and that paramedics would come aboard shortly. At 11.26 and 20 seconds, one of the flight attendants commanded to disarm the doors. At 11.30 and 20 seconds, so now we're talking almost six minutes later after landing. One of the flight attendants announced that paramedics would be coming aboard and to keep the aisle clear. Crews arrived at 11.42 and 14 seconds. That seems like a very long time to me. They landed at 20. 11.20. And when did the paramedics get there? 42. Yeah, 22 minutes later. Oh, yeah, that's not great. I mean, to be fair, they're probably not, like, the paramedics are probably not always on call, like the fire... Right. Yeah, yes. but the air traffic controller knew about it before they landed. So, eh, yes. not great. Yeah. In any case, at 11.51 and 55 seconds, the passengers began deplaning via the air stairs outside the airplane. And at 12.36, so over an hour later from when they landed, the flight crew finally left the airplane. So, wreckage. What actually happened to this airplane? Well, this is all going to sound a little familiar. It was immediately apparent to the rescue crews, as soon as they saw the airplane, that the left engine was severely damaged. There were, there were many scratches on the fuselage of the airplane, and the window adjacent to row 14 was gone. The engine cowling around the left engine was gone, though it was found in a field in Pennsylvania. 
actually, I had just read while I was trying to Google stuff that it appeared on weather radar. Yeah, okay. That's as it was falling. That's nice. So solid. I mean, if they can pick up rain on a radar, they can pick up falling metal. Yeah. Yes. One yeah. would hope. And so now we're going to say something really, really familiar. A fan blade was also missing. Ah. <laughs> oh, God damn. Do you know what number it was? 13, I think. It was. Yeah. Ironic as that. Yeah, it was number That's 13. terrible. There are 24. If for... only we had recorded this yesterday. October 13th. Dang. Dang. There are 24 fan blades for those of you who had asked into your phone. And yes. We didn't actually hear you. And I, I doubt you're going to bring it up. But I learned when this happened that when they replace a fan blade, they do it in pairs. Interesting. So the one that needs to be replaced and the one on the other side... Because it needs to be balanced. Yes, right. which makes sense. So those like two car. are balanced out. Yeah, it's I like did a not car. know that. That's interesting. It makes yes. perfect sense. Yeah, it does make sense. All in all, one passenger perished. It was the one that was sucked part way out the window. The flight attendants did help in trying to get her back in. They did manage to get her back in eventually. She was alive when she left the airplane, right? She died at the hospital? Yes, she perished yeah. later, unfortunately. All in all, eight other passengers were injured, but minorly. Yeah. Were they minorly injured because they were standing up, or they were just, like, in the vicinity of where it, the window came It out? didn't say, but more than likely it could have been debris, it could have been... Could have been that 40-degree bank yes. they went into. Yes, could have been the 40-degree bank. It could have been that they had their eardrums blown out. This happens Ooh. in uh, pressurizations. Yeah, especially a rapid decompression like yeah. that. Yeah, it does happen. Ouch. This was the first fatality in U.S. commercial aviation. Since domestic. 2009, domestic. right? Yep, since, since Colgan Air. Yep, Colgan Air. So, Refer yeah. to episode four. four. Yep. Also, I, now I understand why there was a, a flight, might have been the same year that this happened, where uh, a cowling came off on a, a frontier. frontier flight. We were on like a flight on Frontier like the day after that happened, and people were like freaking out about it. Now I realize why they'd freak out about it. Although the cowling wasn't the issue, it was the fan blade, but... Well... Yes and no. Yes and no. Did the cowling come off before the fan blade, though? No, but it also wasn't supposed to come off. All but one of the 24 fan blades were found as installed in the fan disc... Fan blade 13 had fractured at the root. The fragments from fan blade number 13 were found at the bottom of the fan case between the fan blades and the fan outlet guide vanes. Oh, I knew that. It was Good. in the engine. Yeah, it was, it was still literally. In the engine. So, yeah, see where it says fan blade impact? It got lodged in the blue. That's the blue oh. spot. That's the case, and it got lodged in there. So it was found inside the engine. Oh, nice. Nice. At least it was still there. That's true. Okay. Large pieces of cowling were just found in a field in Pennsylvania. Yep. After the weather, people noticed it coming. Yeah. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Hey, that airplane's raining. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> However, they only found 76% of the fan blade. I think it was probably destroyed. Yeah. It... The remainder, including the tip, was not recovered. Well, okay. who knows where that is. <laughs> okay. To be fair... That's really high expectations, trying to find a little piece of a fan blade in the middle of nowhere. True. And I'll actually explain a little bit more why those parts were not found. Mm -hmm. So what remained of the fan, 
um, so the blades, the shims, the spacers, the platforms, etc., were sent to the NTSB materials lab in DC for examination. A bird strike was quickly ruled out uh, because there weren't feathers or blood. Yes, the there report was, felt yeah. the need to mention that. No birds in the engine. Could have happened. At 32,000 feet? They could have. At 32,000 feet? You got the, what are those birds that f- soar way up that there? Albatross, probably. I don't know. I'm not. Avian. I don't know. I don't know. Good for them if they got up to 32,000 <laughs> feet over Pennsylvania that day. You never know. Most of the fan parts were found to have experienced overstress and impact fractures, as expected, but one of the fan blades was special. The number 13 fan blade had a smooth region of 2.232 inches by 0.483 inches. And what do we know about smooth cracks? Frac- uh, fatigue. It's that thing, yes. Fatigue. I just watched, <laughs> I just watched the episodes. You, start, you yes. started it and then you... <laughs> watched my ears, okay? <laughs> Shut up. I watched with my ears. Okay. My ear balls. Oh, dear God. <laughs> fatigue. <laughs> Yes, the fatigue region had six beach marks or crack arrest lines. They are called crack arrest lines in the report. I know them as beach marks because I study stuff. These occur with changes in the stress state. Ratchet marks were also present, which occur when a, when there are adjacent fatigue cracks. So there were multiple cracks next to each other, making a bigger crack. That's pretty ratchet. Oh, I, I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah. There's one of our middle school references. Yep. Oh, gosh. A scanning electron microscope, or SEM, was used to find striations on the microscopic level, indicating low cycle fatigue crack growth. These occur with each flight cycle rather than with changes in stress states like beach marks, which is why they are so much smaller, but these are far more useful. They act like tree rings, giving a detailed timeline of the blade's history. There were 18,400 striations, meaning 18,400 flight cycles since crack initiation. How's that for accuracy? Counting that out must have been terrible. Who had that job? (laughs) Who do they hate? (laughs) Probably a computer? Some intern. Oh, God. Around every 1,600 flight cycles or so, the fan blades have to be re-lubricated to minimize operation stress on the blade. These re-lubrications line up with the beach marks in the timeline. Re-lubrication changes contact friction, which changes the stress state. There were six beach marks, seven re-lubrications, since the initial beach mark was so small it wasn't really quite there. Also, if you look at the picture, it's kind of hard towards the crack initiation to tell where the lines are. Mm-hmm. Crack arrest line six was from the last blade relubrication. 1,704 cycles have ha- had happened since then, adding to the 18,400 means about 20,000 cycles to failure or flights. That's a lot of cycles, though. That is a yeah. lot of it cycles. It was there for a, a while. That is the timeline is. also shows that the cracking had been there before the last overhaul in October 2012. Because that overhaul lined up with the second crack arrest line or beach mark. Hmm. So it'd been there for more than six years. Wow. Wow. However, different from some of our previous episodes, there were no material or manufacturing anomalies found on the crack surface. Yay! Yay! 
It was determined that the crack occurred in the location of greatest stresses on the fan blade from normal operation, but it was found that they occurred similarly to Southwest Flight 3472, which landed in Pensacola with the exact same problem. Yep. Though no one died on that one. Right. And CFM, the engine manufacturer, found the cracks occurred from that flight because the stresses were higher than what was expected by the engineers who designed the blades, leading to premature fatigue crack initiation. Now, why wasn't this crack found sooner? Always the follow-up question when a crack is found, why didn't we find it sooner? These fan blades are subject to visual inspections during relubrication and fluorescent penetrant inspection during overhauls, or FPI. These fan blades had been relubricated seven times since the crack initiation, and it was not found at a single visual inspection, so investigators confirmed that it was likely below the visual inspection threshold. Basically too small to see. It was not the inspector's fault, just to make that clear. Yep. Investigators also surmised that the crack may have been undetectable at the time of the FPI during the overhaul. An eddy current inspection process had been implemented during overhaul since the Pensacola incident, but this engine had not been overhauled since that incident. That's just unfortunate. After the Southwest Pensacola incident, CFM implemented an ultrasonic inspection method and issued a service bulletin in June 2017 for a one-time ultrasonic inspection of all CFM 567B engines with more than 15,000 cycles since the last shop visit. At 8,483 cycles, this accident engine did not qualify and was not inspected as such. One month later, another service bulletin went out for a one-time ultrasonic inspection for fan blades that had certain part numbers. But the accident fan was not one of those, so it did not undergo that inspection either. Since this accident, the FAA issued several airworthiness directives for initial and repetitive ultrasonic inspections. As of this report, quote, Ultrasonic inspections are currently required to be performed before a fan blade accumulates 17,000 flight cycles since new and repeated at intervals of no more than 1,600 flight cycles, which is about the current interval between fan blade relubrications, end quote. Basically, now they would have the ultrasonic inspection during lubrications. The next part is also verbatim. In addition... After the Philadelphia accident, cracks were detected on multiple fan blades using ultrasonic inspections as part of blade relubrications, or ECIs, which is eddy current inspections, during overhaul. Thus, the NTSB concludes that the requirement to perform an ECI at the time of fan blade overhaul and an ultrasonic inspection at the time of blade relubrication should enable cracked fan blades in C. FM 567B engines to be detected and removed from service before the cracks reach a critical size and the blades fracture. End quote. Now this is great and all, but why wasn't it contained? Engines are designed to contain such engine failures. The inlet portion of the engine was designed around enduring a fan blade out event, or an FBO event. In a lot of ways, this FBO behaved as it should have. Wait, I know. hold on, hold on. So yes, fixed base operation. Now I have two <laughs> FBOs to worry about. Yes, you uh, do. I know, right? I said the same thing when we were going through this report. Apparently, FBO stands for something else. Fixed base operation, which is a much more common. Right. That's that's you know you, you show up in a private jet, you go to that instead of like the regular terminal. Right. That is yeah, basically a jet center. Uh, uh, Signature yeah. flight support, you know, those, yeah. those places. Well, the if nice you're, places. If you're designing an engine, you're more worried about this kind of FBO. 
cool. Yeah, but the other one has like snacks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and couches usually. Anyway, the fan blade tip and mid-span parts went forward into the inlet, which is probably why they weren't recovered. Yep. And the rest went backward within the fan case, which remained intact, as did the inlet containment shield. The fan case had high deformation, displacement, load, stresses, etc. circumferentially, and forward and aft, as it was designed to do. However, there's always a however, the fan blade parts that went forward left at an angle beyond the containment shield, and the damage to the inlet was far greater than during certification testing. Because so, that's what I remember from this, is that it was technically a contained failure. Yes, but this was unpredictable. Yes, they did not realize that this could happen yet. So. Right. Yeah, so... So technically it was contained, it's just what the other things that happened did not... Stay contained. Stay contained. No. <laughs> All the subsequent events. In this accident, the aft bulkhead to inlet attachment ring failed leaving the inner barrel as the only thing still attached capable of supporting inlet loads, but that ended up failing too, despite certification tests showing it should have been able to sustain FBO damage. Now, you may recall that the fan cowl departed, is the term that they used? Yeah. As in flew off? Yep. Turns out that Boeing did not actually test the cowl during FBO containment certification, as they needed to be able to see inside, which would have been obscured by the cowl. So they used a method of analysis called finite element analysis, or FEA. I have done this type of analysis many a time, took a couple classes on it. It's pretty cool. I've talked about it on the podcast before. Yes. You can analyze things of weird shapes. Like Nick? Yeah. I qualify. Basically, you take the part in question as a 3D model and add a bunch of loadings to see what stresses look like and if it will fail. They used the data from the FBO certification as the loadings, and they had added an additional part, a radial restraint fitting on the bottom of the inboard cowl because of the shape of the engine. For those of you who don't know this tidbit, uh, 737s have a flat bottom on their engines. Yes. Because they're so close to the ground. Yeah, this came back from the original design of the 37, because they built it super low. So low to the ground. Which, again, we'll talk about in the post episode, because that's a piece of Oh, I thought you were going to talk about why they're longer in the post episode. Why they shouldn't be longer. Yes, why they should be longer. They should be longer. Yes, why they should have been longer as soon as they built the original 737. The original, Mm -hmm. the classic series 737, not the original, I should say. Can we talk about why they're low? Yes, the reason they're low is because originally when they were built, they were intended to be worked on by anybody, which required them to be able to do it at man height. So the engines were built, the airplane was built low to the ground, so that the engines were low to the ground, so that when they flew into remote places, since the 737 can now fly into places that most airliners never could before, then the mechanics that were at these little airports that didn't have big, tall stands to work on things could... Just pop the engine open at eye level and work on the airplane. Well, they also had it because they didn't, you know, a lot of times back when they built it, they didn't have gates. Right. So they also had to build it low enough that they could just put so that they, a ladder. They whatever stairs they had, <laughs> it would work. They didn't need to get, like, extra stairs to just deboard the, board the plane. Yep, exactly. That's why they had the cigar engines. Yes. So, they have flat bottoms. <laughs> so, in order to accomplish that... 
there is a part called the radial restraint fitting, which actually pulls up the cowling to the bottom of the like machine of the engine. And the engineering team who designed this assumed that that part would fail after an FBO immediately, and that would make it so that any loads would not be transferred to the cowl. This is what they had used during that finite element analysis to see if the cowl would remain attached. But in this case, it obviously didn't. Boeing performed an analysis after this accident using the parts left and determined that the cowl had a weak spot when the fan blade impacts the fan case in the 6 o'clock position, or at the bottom of the engine, whereas it had been certified with the fan blade impacting the 12 o'clock position, or at the top. Which makes sense, because a lot of the engine failures that had to do with fan blades that went up. Yeah. But in this case, the weak spot was actually the reverse. Yep. This weak spot occurs because that's where the radial restraint fitting is, the part that they had said would fail during FBO. Well, the part didn't fail, so actually the load was transmitted to the cowl, which broke. And subsequently caused a lot of damage to the airplane, and ended up in a field in Pennsylvania. This next part is verbatim because the NTSB has gotten so good at saying things that it's more effort to reward it than just read it. They have good words. Yeah. <laughs> so there's the radial, radial restraint fitting, so that that makes a little more sense. Yeah, <laughs> the radial restraint fitting would attach to the fan casing, the engine fan casing. And that would that's what pulls the cowling up to make to, it flat on the bottom. Flat. Right. Yeah. As soon as you release that thing, it's round. So when there was impact loading and deformation in the fan case, they had designed, they thought, they had analyzed and designed it such that the fitting would fail. So any of that deformation and loading in the fan case would not reach the cowl because they weren't attached. But jokes on them because the fitting didn't fail. So all those loads transferred. So the cowl experienced the same loading that it was not designed to. And the latches actually was the part that ended up failing on the cowl. The skin stress is associated with loads transmitted to the fan cowl through the radial restraint fitting resulted in fractures initiating around the latches in the inboard fan cowl. These fractures eventually caused the inboard fan cowl structure surrounding the aft and middle latch keepers to separate. The separation of the forward latch assembly quickly followed, which allowed the fan cowls to open! Yay. That's usually not a good thing in flight. The aft latch assembly, which is the latch keeper and latch hook, remained engaged as air loads caused both fan cowl halves to continue to open and the aft latch keeper on the inboard fan cowl, its surrounding support structure, and part of the inboard fan cowl skin were flung up and over the engine and the left wing. The aft latch assembly then separated, and the inboard fan cowl piece with the aft latch keeper impacted the fuselage near the window by seat 14A. The NTSB concludes that the impact of the inboard fan cowl aft latch keeper with the fuselage near the cabin window adjacent to seat 14A caused the window to depart the airplane, the rapid depressurization of the cabin, and the passenger fatality. So... So th- there's their picture with the trajectory. Yep. Wow, that's a lot to have it go that far into a window. Yes. But at the speeds they were going at the altitude they were at, I'm not entirely surprised. So 
Now let's be clear about something else, because we didn't clear this up earlier. The whole reason they were feeling so much friction wasn't just because they were carrying an engine that wasn't doing anything. It's also because the pieces from that engine managed to damage, as you see in this picture, the wing. And it turns out that causes a lot of drag, even if it's not very big. Do you have a picture of the rest of the wing? Um, here, allow me to show you something. Because there's a lot... I remember a lot more damage. Uh, yeah. Let me show you this. This is Boeing's analysis of the airplane post-accident. Boeing's letter. There's windows with scratches, metal, paint, scratches, pieces of metal. There's holes in the fuselage. Another box. More pieces of metal. Large chunks. Chunks. Pieces of the wing that are highly damaged. They also spent a lot of time trying to prove that it was metal that hit the window. Was it, or was it the cowling? The cowling is metal. This was one of the oh. leading edge slats. Oh, yeah. What else would hit the window? That's... I don't know, but all of this is swab samples <clears throat> proving that it was the cowl that hit the window. They did way too much work on that. They just want to make <laughs> make sure like the window didn't just pop out. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Look at the hole in the wing. Oh, there you go. This is why the airplane was difficult to fly. That uh, hole in the wing? Between yes. that... That's a different one. This is a different one. Oh. Between the many holes in the wings, the slats and the flaps, and the now very heavy and distorted engine that was causing a lot of drag. Also air going into the fuselage. Yes. This caused a lot of rough air over the wing and over the airplane. It looks like it's bleeding. Yeah, right. That's a composite failure, by the way. In any case. Yeah, those are all composite. Yeah. And now for another note. For those of you that went, wait, what? There's another accident? Yes, there was. Oh, yeah, I kind of glanced over that one. Yeah, Southwest Airlines Flight 3472 was only 20 months prior to this. That's why we managed to bring up that there were so many changes prior to this accident. Because they already pretty much knew all of this before this happened. And unfortunately, it happened anyways. Which is why, actually, this accident wasn't anybody's fault. Yeah, so any... You'll find out later, there's not a whole lot of recommendations and conclusions because so many had already been implemented from the previous accident. And unfortunately, this one just kind of slipped through the cracks of all the various required inspections. So what happened to both airplanes? They both, they both ended up in Victorville, California, and have both been there since. How they managed to get this airplane there, they must have done some serious work. Or they just put another... Well, I guess they had to fix the wing. And there's holes in the fuselage. They didn't fix all this stuff. Some of it you wouldn't have to to fly the plane. More than but... likely they got a ferry permit to fly this airplane low and slow. I was going to say, they probably found a pilot with no family, and they <laughs> get, got a permit. Yeah. that's No, that's actually what happens. That's so that's horrible. horrible. Yes. That's what happens. They, they probably, they find they ways probably to... compensate him pretty well. So. Yeah, they, this is usually still a safe thing. You'd be surprised. But they have to get a Would they have permit. replaced the engine on it? Yes. Okay. Well, that's what I would think. They just replace the engine and fly the plane. The FAA has to issue the ferry permit, and they would definitely not issue this airplane a ferry permit holding that engine under the wing. You want to take off with that thing? Ah, <laughs> eh, whatever. Eh, whatever. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah, fly it all the way across the country. It's fine. Break. Break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back, everybody. I hope oh, you man. enjoyed that commercial that was... There, if it wasn't, you should go check out Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> it could be any Patreon. This one, a different one. We would like it for you to be in this Patreon, but that's okay. <laughs> All right, end of commercial. Thank you. So now for findings. There aren't a whole lot of these, but I did actually find the first one interesting, and normally I just skip right over that one. And you know what you could find on your website is the link to your Patreon. <laughs> Yes, you can. So go check that out if you haven't already. So what was the first one, Nick, that you normally just read over? So normally I just skip right over the first finding because we all know that's just usually the crew is qualified. Well, it's actually a little more interesting than that because they decided to condense this first one. Usually what's normally like the first two or three findings into one. They said... None of the following were factors in this accident. One, flight crew qualifications, which were in accordance with the U.S. regulations. Two, flight crew medical conditions. Three, the airworthiness of the airplane before the left engine failure. And four, Southwest Airlines maintenance of the airplane. Thank God, because the freaking, the Taiwanese one I read the other day had like a section just of all of the things that had nothing to do with the accident. Well, there you go. This one had one. Thank God. They also found that the low cycle fatigue crack in the fan blade dovetail initiated because of higher than expected dovetail stresses under normal operating loads, and this crack was most likely not detectable during the fluorescent penetrant inspection at the time of the fan blade set's last overhaul and subsequent visual inspection at the time of the fan blade relubrication. Basically everything we described. Couldn't be found. Woo! They found that the requirement to perform an eddy current inspection at the time of the fan blade overhaul and an ultrasonic inspection at the time of the blade relubrication should enable cracked fan blades in CFM56-7B engines to be detected and removed from service before the cracks reach a critical size and the blades fracture. So that's one of the things that definitely got implemented. And it was already implemented by the time this this accident had happened. Exactly. This was a known thing. It just now got narrowed down even further. Yes. They found that the fan blade fragments that traveled forward of the fan case, along with the displacement wave created by the fan blade's impact with the fan case, caused damage that compromised the structural integrity of the inlet and caused portions of the inlet to depart from the airplane. There's that depart thing again. Somebody just went ham with that. They found that portions of the fan cowl departed the airplane because... 1. The impact of the separated fan blade with the fan case imparted significant loads into the fan cowl through the radial restraint fitting... And two, the associated stresses in the fan cowl structure exceeded the the residual strength of the fan cowl, causing its failure. They found that the impact of the inboard fan cowl aft latch keeper with the fuselage near the cabin window adjacent to seat 14A caused the window to depart the airplane, the rapid depressurization of the cabin, and the passenger fatality. They found that this accident demonstrated the susceptibility of the fan cowl installed in the 737 Next Generation Series airplanes to a fan blade out impact location near the radial restraint fitting and the effects of such an impact on the structural integrity of the cowl. They found that given the results of CFM's engine fan blade out 
containment certification tests, and Boeing's subsequent structural analysis of the effects of an fan blade out event on the airframe. The post fan blade out events that occurred during the accident could not have been predicted. Thank you for not using FBO. They found that the structural analysis modeling tools that currently exist to analyze the fan blade out event and predict the subsequent engine and airframe damage will allow airplane manufacturers to better understand the interaction of the engine and airframe during an fan blade out event and the response of the inlet, fan cowl, and associated structures in the airplane's normal operating envelope. So to explain that one a little bit, to analyze this accident, Boeing used better finite element analysis than they had previously. Because mm-hmm. technology. Yeah. Woo. So that's that. They found that performing required checklist recording to standard operating procedures is a critical part of safe flight operations. Here's the fun part. However, given the emergency situation aboard this flight, the flight crew's performance of most but not all of the items on the engine fire or engine severe damage or separation non-normal checklist and the non-performance of the three other relevant non-normal checklists allowed the crew to appropriately balance the procedural requirements of executing checklists with the high workload associated with maintaining airplane control and accomplishing a safe and timely descent and landing. I would agree with that. We were talking about that beforehand. They did the... Memory items. Right. They did the memory items, which are the important ones anyways. But they got praised for not doing checklists. Well, you don't want to get bogged down trying no. to figure out checklists when you want to keep your yourself, your passengers, and the plane safe. Yeah. Airbus. The A380. Qantas. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is one... Hey, this is one time we get to hit at Airbus, okay? That doesn't right. happen I should, very I should often. be taking the opportunity here. Yes, this doesn't happen very often. <sighs> Good old Airbus. Yes. Oh, look, we have an engine failure. Let me sit on this computer for an hour. Yeah. More checklists, more checklists. Checklists, more checklists, checklists, more checklists. There might be something wrong with this airplane. I should probably check it out. Let's fly it back to an airport. According to this checklist, we should really be dead by now. Everything is wrong with this airplane. God, anyway. Guys, a tire popped, but apparently the whole airplane stopped working. <laughs> At least the A3A actually has a keyboard. Yeah. Like a legit keyboard. Yes. Because they built a computer where you need one. And And the Boeing 737 doesn't. And they got rid of those stupid things between your legs that control the aircraft. So you don't have to worry about those in your way. So Yes. This is true. Yeah. And then they have those things on the side that don't give feedback to what the other person is doing. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of mix-up. There you go. Another (laughs) chance to hit an Airbus. (laughs) A.K. look at almost all Air France accidents we've covered. Yes, true. Though, if we are going to make this a small tangent, I do have to argue that the yoke is highly inconvenient. Because when do you ever use both hands on a yoke? I think I've told you many times, if I'm buying an airplane, I'm sawing off (laughs) half of the yoke. (laughs) Yes, seriously. You don't need the other half. It is so inconvenient. And, like, if you're trying to eat, you got the thing (laughs) in your lap, and you, like... Because like, they do eat in the cockpit. They do eat in the cockpit, You have to, like, yeah. worry about... You have to, like, slide your seat back so you're not in the way of the, the person actually flying the plane. Yes. Or the autopilot. Yes. I liked Embraer's solution where they just reversed the yoke so it comes down from the top. That actually yeah, makes to, like, a lot of sense. Like, yes. Hold it, like... like, like it's a, like riding a bike. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's so... It's, they did the same thing on the Concorde, too. Yeah, they did. Oh, God. I think you and I Whatever. just need to have a rant episode <laughs> about aviation. <laughs> Could be a Patreon inclusive. 
That's my job. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to hear Nick and I rant about something, check out our Patreon. Their yeah. Patreon, not mine. <laughs> All right. They found that the flight crew's decision to land at Philadelphia International Airport was appropriate given the airplane's location at the time of the emergency, the circumstances of the emergency, and the airport's multiple runways and aircraft rescue and firefighting capabilities. Smart decision. Yeah, good on the captain, because she's technically the one who made that decision. Yeah. They found that although not a factor in the outcome of this accident, the flight attendants should have been properly restrained in their assigned jump seats in case an emergency evacuation after landing was necessary. So here it is! Here's the other thing we didn't touch on, and I wanted to wait until here anyways, because there was a whole section about what happened in the cabin, the passenger cabin, when all of this was going on. We glance over that a little bit because the important thing is really how this plane got safely to the ground, how this could have been worse, and how they've fixed this going forward. But there was one key thing that happened that was wrong here, and that was the flight attendants weren't in their seats. Okay, were some of them trying to pull the lady back in? Because I could well, kind of understand that. So the airplane was 100% full. Yep, there were no open seats. So the people that were sitting in that 14 A, B, and C, they had to move. Right. And they took the jump seats. Right. So the flight attendants didn't have anywhere to sit after that. Right. So they sat on the floor. Yep. This is wrong. Oh. Yeah. This they is not be, legal. This should be in a jump seat. Yes. Unfortunately, what happens when a passenger is... In injured or sucked out of the airplane or dead this happens a lot actually a lot more than you hear it they actually have blankets on the airplane for that specifically they keep actually blankets that they can wrap over said person so that they don't they aren't basically they don't keep just people from sitting there just sitting there and they do that actually so that the people seated next to them can still have their seats this is an well, international standard. From what I was aware, they laid the person down in the, the three seats. Yes. Until they could work on keeping her alive. Right. Which I, I understand, and in the, in the moment, who knows what I would have done. But at the same time, it's like, there were still procedures in place right, they, for a reason. It's One person's already severely injured. You don't need the rest, especially the people who were in charge of getting everybody off the airplane safely. Exactly. To get hurt. I would say... Given the circumstances, and probably those, I mean, I'm saying probably because I don't know, but probably those flight attendants may have never encountered an emergency like this specifically well, before. No. So the decision that they made to move the other passengers to a jump seat so they had a seat so they could keep this person alive, I can understand why they made that decision being the professionals they are. Was it a good thing to do? Probably not, because they don't have anywhere to sit at that point. Yeah, they should have just traded roles, have the passengers sit on the floor, and then the flight attendants sit in the jump seat. To be fair, the NTSB doesn't have a whole lot to say about this, because they kind of understand the situation, too. Everything still turned out pretty good, so it was not worth making a big deal out of, but they still felt the need to mention it. They mentioned it here still two more times. One more in findings and one in recommendations. Finally, for findings, they said they found that the Federal Aviation Administration guidance addressing options for reseating passengers if an in-flight loss of seating capacity were to occur would help air carriers implement procedures to address this situation. To be honest, this should have required this should have been required a long time ago, i.e., Aloha, when some seats people were sitting in seats that were just dangling. Yep. Literally, like the floor was gone and they were bouncing up and down as the airplane was flying through air. 
That was nice. We have covered that episode. If you're just tuning in with us, you should go check it out. They did manage to move some of those passengers rearward. And not that you would want to actually get up. Yeah, once that is happening. (laughs) Once the whole plane is missing from your... Yeah, (laughs) no kidding. All right. Probable cause. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was a low-cycle fatigue crack in the dovetail of fan blade number 13, which resulted in the fan blade separating in flight and impacting the engine fan case at a location that was critical to the structural integrity and performance of the fan cowl structure. The impact led to the in-flight separation of fan cowl components, including the inboard fan cowl aft latch keeper, which struck the fuselage near a cabin window and caused the window to depart from the airplane, the cabin to rapidly depressurize, and the passenger fatality. Yeah, they repeated themselves themselves quite a bit. So I, I found a news article where it actually says that one of the minor injuries was one of the men who tried to pull her back into the plane. Mm-hmm. One of the men, an EMT in Texas, and a retired school nurse began CPR on her, but her injuries were too severe. She was also a mother of two. Oh, yes. that's sad. Yes, the story is very unfortunate. She this was, could have been worse. She was 43 from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and her name was Jennifer Riordan. Mm. Well, to the family of Jennifer, we're sorry. We give our condolences. It was unfortunate. It was. It really was. It was nice of those two passengers, though, to try to help her stay alive. I mm-hmm. feel like there's a lot of people nowadays that would be too scared to do that. So. Yeah. Okay, so recommendations. There aren't many of these either. At all. It's one page. Yeah, it is one page, which never happens with the NTSB. But that's because they didn't have much to say about this because... Of the accident that happened this 20 already. months private. <laughs> this already yeah, happened. Previous, yeah. Yeah, this already happened. They recommended to the Federal Aviation Administration to require Boeing to determine the critical fan blade impact locations on the CFM 56-7B engine fan case and redesign the fan cowl structure on all Boeing 737 Next Generation Series airplanes to ensure the structural integrity of the fan cowl after a fan blade out event. Now, basically by the time this report was released... That already happened. Well, here's the thing. Kind of, but they could only implement this for airplanes that already existed. Because the next generation stopped being made. Cue the Max episode. Yay! So we're not having so, that for a so while. So in other words, this wasn't the biggest issue that they were having with the 737. Yeah, because this report came out in 2019. Yep. After Right after Ethiopia. Max? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They recommended to the FAA that once the actions requested in safety recommendation A-19-17 are completed, require Boeing to install the redesigned fan cowl structure on new production 737 generation, next generation series airplanes. They couldn't. By the way, they was referring to the previous recommendation. Right. Okay. They recommended the FAA that once the actions... In the first recommendation. In the first recommendation... We're completed to require operators of the Boeing 737 next generation series airplanes to retrofit their airplanes with the redesigned fan cowl structure, which is far more important because there are still a lot of them. There are still thousands of next generation 737s flying all over the world. They recommended to the FAA to expand the Part 25 and 33 certification requirements of the FAR, Federal Aviation Regulations, to mandate that airplanes and engine manufacturers work collaboratively to, one, analyze all critical fan blade impact locations for all engine operating conditions, 
the resulting fan blade fragmentation and the effects of the fan blade outgenerated loads on the nacelle structures, and two, develop a method to ensure that the analysis findings are fully accounted for in the design of the nacelle structures and its components. So in other words, don't forego anything when you test the engine. Don't go, ah, we needed to see it. No, test the cowling. Could you run two tests? Probably. One to see it, one for the cowling. Probably. Also, don't assume that a part fails. Yeah. Finally, they recommended to the FAA to develop and issue guidance on ways that air carriers can mitigate hazards to passengers affected by an in-flight loss of seating capacity. There's that seating thing again with the flight attendants. Then they recommended to Southwest Airlines to include the lessons learned from the accident involving Southwest Airlines Flight 1380 in initial and recurrent flight attendant training, emphasizing the importance of being secured in a jump seat during emergency landings. There it is again. And one more. They recommended to the European Aviation Safety Agency. Or the EASA. Yep. The exact same thing that they said to the FAA. Yep. Basically. To expand your certification requirements for transport category airplanes and aircraft engines and to mandate that airplanes and engine manufacturers work collaboratively to, one, analyze all critical fan blade impact locations for all engine operating conditions, the resulting fan blade fragmentation and the effects of the fan blade out-generated loads on the nacelle structure, and two, develop a method to ensure that the analysis findings are are fully accounted for in the design of the nacelle structure and its components. Ta-da! Woo! So if that wasn't enough recommendations for you, I would recommend going over to Patreon (laughs) and catching up some more recommendations. We're really not paying you for this. I, one day. Someday. (laughs) We have a new thing happening on Patreon occasionally. Sporadic mini episodes. So basically, if it's something that is not commercial aviation related. And it gets recommended to us. We'll just do it on a mini episode on the Patreon because... That way, it's like you get a little bit of extra something, and you know it can't. It's not long enough to be a main episode, so we were like, "We'll just do a mini sode on it." Extra brownie points if you can tell us how many times Brendan said Patreon in this episode. Because we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Patreon. God. Um, Speaking of extras, this what what day does this come out? The twenty seventh, I believe. Not soon enough. So this episode is coming out at the end of October, which means November's almost here. And we have a new theme for your November aviation stories. And the theme is Thank God Stories. So thank God this didn't happen, or thank God we actually landed, or etc. Yeah. Obviously not denominational. But, thank you know. God we ended up staying on the ground for an extra 30 minutes or whatever. You thank know. goodness. Whatever. So that's November because November is the month of Thanksgiving here in the United States. Remember, if you are not a person who is listening from the United States, you can always give us your stories if you're from a different country. So we're you interested. And tell us just any story from anywhere. Yeah, just because there's a theme doesn't mean you have to adhere to it. Yeah. Because even if your story doesn't end up with our theme this month and we don't put you in this month, we might have a theme coming up that we can fit you into. We'll so see. we'll just put that story in that theme. Or we'll just tell your story anyway because it's there and you gave us a story. We have a couple uh, – we haven't uh, – of course, we record in advance, right? So we haven't recorded the October episode yet, but you will hear that most likely before you hear this. So – yeah. Remember, there's the listener questions on the website if you want to ask any questions. Yep. And 
that if you want to listen to any of the episodes while you look at the pictures, that is also available to you now on the website. So, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, we also have a P.O. box. We haven't mentioned that yet. Yeah, yeah, we have a P.O. box now. If you want to send us something, we're not asking you to, but if you would like to, it is on the contact portion of our website. Do you know what else you can find on your website? (laughs) (laughs) Please, tell me. Tell me more. I don't think I mentioned this before, but you can find their Patreon <laughs> on their website. It's really cool. Yes, they got some can. extra things on there that do they do not have. So, yeah. So go 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 see pay all the extra go stuff. pay them money, and they will reward you with some other things to listen. I think you, do you still send things to people. We we do. If you pay us twenty dollars or more a month, you get a patch. Okay, that seems like a lot. If you feel like that's worth it, then that's up to you. I shout out to Chris who does that. You also get. A uh, monthly live stream slash yes. and Zoom polls call. and Q and A's and all that kind of stuff. So if because we don't have a lot of twenty dollar a month patrons right now, you just get a Zoom call from us, which is way more personable. Yeah. So again, last time we planned it for an hour, ended up being two and a half hours. But it was great. So I am going to read our uh, PO box this one time. It's on the contact portion of the website. If you need to go look at it. If you would like to, you can send us mail at Hard Landings Podcast, P.O. Box 461-977, Aurora, Colorado 80046. Do not feel pressured by the amount of times Brendan mentioned Patreon to go to the Patreon, although we'd love for you to support us. But That's we what I also... said. Hey, Brendan, I heard you had something to tell us. Yeah, uh, you should go check out Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Don't feel Words. pressured. Yes. And then you and I should make one sort of formal announcement. Yeah, we haven't really talked about it, though, so I don't really I know, know uh, what or how or where and why. It's going to be super super kind of informalized, but we do want to do it anyways. But we're making a podcast about his flight training. So the... Uh, do we come up with the, is that the I name? I think we're just going to go with that. Yeah, so we're going to call it Soft Landings, which yes. is the opposite of Hard Landings. Yes, so this isn't going to be anything about death, destruction, landing, you know, crashes or anything like that. Hopefully. This is going to be... This is going to be about lessons and the things we learn along the way and so things to learn in aviation, period. All we haven't, talk, we haven't talked about this, but my thought was just kind of go through, so far, my process of getting my private pilot's license. Yeah. And then once that happens, we can just talk about flying things, and then eventually you'll get yours. We can talk about that. Yes. So this will be a going forward thing that you can find, I'm sure, the same way you can find us, Hard Landings. And we will start to have more information about that we'll as it, it's released. Keep you informed. Yes. And your Patreon contributions help Nick pay for his eventual flight lessons. Hopefully someday, maybe. So, that being said... Check out Patreon and have a good <laughs> day, night, morning, pre-evening. <laughs> Evening. <laughs> stay safe, stay healthy, wear a mask, vote if you're in the United Please States. Vote. You have until Tuesday, and we'll catch you next week. Keep Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.